Hey all, it's Pete, your thankful and humbled rule lord. Um, before we get the episode going, I just, I need to say a huge thank you to all of you. Thanks to you for sharing the podcast, I got nearly 1,000 downloads for the first episode alone. And for someone releasing just one episode of a very niche topic, that's that's unheard of. So really, I can't thank you enough. Uh, because of this, I want to involve you more with the podcast. There's two ways that I'm going to do that for now. The first is that I'm going to set up some funding goals on Patreon. Each goal reached will boost the reward tiers, giving everyone access to more stuff and sooner. Stuff like releasing bonus episodes for free, less months to wait for a message cantrip, stuff like that. Patreon is mostly how I'll be recouping the cost of making this podcast, so each goal will help me dig myself out of some initial expenses. As we reach these goals, I'll need Patreon a lot less, and so don't need the incentives to be as high, letting you have more access to them. Second, any patron at any level can submit a community use policy voiceover to my email at rulord2e at gmail.com. I have to say this anyway, somehow, so why not give you guys a little bit more time in the limelight and make you a permanent addition to the podcast? Terms are on Patreon, and a successful submission will sound a little something like this. Hi, I'm voice actor Charlie Wes, and I voice Quentin on the fantasy audio drama Omen. Rise of the Rule Lords uses trademarks and or copyrights owned by Paizo Incorporated, used under Paizo's community use policy. We are expressly prohibited from charging you to use or access this content. Rise of the Rule Lords is not published, endorsed, nor specifically approved by Paizo. For more information about Paizo Incorporated and Paizo products, visit paizo.com. Be sure to check out omencast.com for more swashbuckling adventures, and don't let the rules rule you. Ancestries, backgrounds, classes, oh my! It's time to play Pathfinder on Rise of the Rule Lords! So, you agreed to play a game of Pathfinder, but you didn't read the whole 600-page rulebook. Well, you screwed up. But don't you worry. We're going to show you how to play Pathfinder 2nd Edition in the time that it takes you to drive to your game. Oh yeah, hey, it's Pete, and I'll be your capricious and malevolent rule lord. So I know what you're thinking. You're looking at this giant core rulebook for Pathfinder 2nd Edition, and you're thinking that there's just got to be way too much stuff to this game but really there's not chapter 9 called playing the game is only 38 pages a lot of which is art so when you see this tome of knowledge know that most of the info is just reference stuff in there you're only going to need to know about five percent of the entire book for regular play the rest is there for when you need it so when you pick an ancestry you'll only need to reference that section when you pick a feat, you'll only need to know what that one feat does. Even spells which take up by far the biggest chunk of the book, you only need to look at them when you use them. So really, the parts of the book you'll most frequently reference are the pages for your class, each of which is only about 10 pages long, or 1% of the entire book. And half of those pages are class-specific feats you choose from as you level up. Each class also has this nifty table outlining 
every single step to take at each level. So when you get new feats, when you get to pick new spells, when you get to level up a stat. So as long as you can follow simple instructions like using your blinker or wearing a mask during a global plague. Uh, oh, um... Okay, so maybe some of these things will be a little bit more complex for other people, but really it's not that hard. But if you want a reference book that's a lot less scary, a lot smaller, a lot lighter, you can find all this same information in the Hero's Handbook, found in the Pathfinder 2nd Edition Beginner's Box. Paizo is not sponsoring me to say any of this, I just am because I really think this is a great product. It's great for new players, new GMs, or just entirely new groups. It comes with a pre-written adventure that's basically a tutorial to show you about each aspect of the game. It also comes with maps, minis, color-coded dice, pre-generated character sheets, as well as these cool little reference cards that have the basic actions and some lingo. It even perfectly fits a GM screen inside of it, which provides a lot more reference material for GMs, both the regular GM screen as well as the advanced one. So this is a really cool product if you're just getting into Pathfinder, but we're just going to focus on what it says in the core rulebook for right now. If you have a specific class in mind, go check out any of the number of YouTubers or podcasters who already went into them at great length. I'm not going to go into each specific class because they already did all the work for me, so go give them a bump. But we will start at character creation. So the first thing that I want you to do is to close your eyes. Not if you're driving, though. Picture who you want to play. No, I know what you were thinking. Alchemist, sorcerer, barbarian. That's not who, that's what. And it's a rep that players can commonly fall into. Pathfinder is a tabletop roleplay game. It's not just a combat simulator or your GM pouring exposition down your gullet. It's a game where you assume a character who is in a world with feelings, goals, and a personality. That's not to say you have to come up with a character voice or be an outstanding actor. It just means that you have to play someone. So again, let's close our eyes, think about who you want. No! I know what you were just thinking right there. They come from Taldor. They used to be an assassin. Their parents are dead. What you were just doing is creating a background. And there's a whole part of the character creation process just for that but you're creating a story before you even have a protagonist. Okay, so maybe I was a little too vague before. Who are you? Yes, you the listener. Who are you? When someone asks me who I am, do I say government bureaucrat? No, because that's my job. I'm not defined by that. Do I say I lived in Colorado? No, because that says nothing about me, only the space my body once occupied in time. I say... I love dogs, I value equity, I enjoy Pathfinder, and I hate heat. That's what your character needs first. Character. Take the Iconics Pathfinder uses. Valeros is a human fighter, but he's funny, he tries to be charming, and is loyal to a fault. Linny is a gnomish druid, but what informs how she acts is her love of nature, compassion for living things, and disdain for society and manufactured products. Amiri is dreamy. So think about that first. Whose skin are you occupying? Are they curious? Are they stubborn? 
Do they have a goal or are they aloof? Or for the most simple baseline, are they in it for adventure, glory, wealth, knowledge, etc.? This is a character you're going to be playing for some time and you'll have a much easier time with the rest of the character creation process because you can build around who you want to play. Before we get to building, there's just one more thing that I want to get out of the way. There has for a long time in fantasy games been a standard party. A healer, a face, a tank, a skill monkey. While these are still essential parts of the game, like having a healer and someone who can take it as well as they can give it. Pathfinder 2e characters are not restricted by that though. Remember how I talked about proficiency in session 0? That means that you'll get better at each level as you progress, regardless of if you put anything into the stats that will make you better. You'll get plenty of class feats to keep you at the top of your game, but you can be more. You can have a fighter who heals, a sorcerer who picks locks, a barbarian who uses diplomacy. They might not be optimal builds, but they're builds that can still hold their own. Talk to your party, make sure that someone can fix you, someone can open doors, someone can talk to a mayor without causing an international incident. Don't feel like you have to choose a cleric just so that you can be the party healer. You don't, and neither does anyone else in your party. So with that out of the way, let's get to creating a character. We're going to do that by following the ABCs for Ancestry, Background, and Class. I'm only going to be looking at the ancestries and classes found in the core rulebook. But when you get comfortable, there's a lot more out there for you. There are ancestries, backgrounds, and classes scattered throughout the Lost Omen series, as well as the Advanced Player's Guide, Guns and Gears, and Secrets of Magic. Ancestries are the first what that you are. You'll get a lot of innate traits here, as each one has some base stats, namely hit points, size, speed, ability boosts and flaws, languages, and even perception types if you have specialized. Dwarf. Stocky and wise, but not always the most well-mannered. Elf. While frail in body, their nimbleness and cleverness makes up for it. No! They won't beat you in a bench press, but they're hardy in their small size and have infectious personalities. Goblin. Once one of the main antagonists, yet always a Paizo fan favorite. Goblins make up for their lack of wisdom with quick strikes and quicker wits. Halflings. Have no need to exert themselves when cunning and light feet will get them twice as far. Hobbits. And of course, Leshy's baby! Okay, fine, no, Leshies aren't a core ancestry. They're a fun plant people found in the Lost Omens character guide, but they should have been! No, the real last ancestry is humans who think they're so special with their free ability boosts and no flaws and versatile heritages and. Hey there. Pete here, sorry for the tangent. In reality, humans are perfectly acceptable and fun playable ancestries and can be a fun way to insert yourself into a fantasy setting. Paizo accommodates this even more by having a wide array of respectful fantasy human heritages with real-world counterparts, meaning that no matter what spot on the globe your own heritage is from, there's likely one in-game that will make you and your character as real and ingrained a part in G-World as any fantasy ancestry. Okay, let's get back to it. 
Yourself? I'm glad I got that out of my system. Each ancestry also has some heritages, which zooms in on how the environment of your ancestors has passed on to you, giving you unique benefits. It's separate from culture and ethnicity, but may give you some ideas on how your physique has informed your culture or how you interact with either your adopted or nation of origin. Let's pull out a character sheet because you'll want to start filling out the items in the sidebar of your ancestry, especially ability boosts. Ability boosts and flaws are points that will determine your ability modifier for six key abilities. Strength, how hard you hit. Dexterity, how well you can avoid getting hit. Constitution, how well you can take a hit. Intelligence, knowing where to hit. Wisdom, knowing when to hit. And charisma, how well you can hit on someone. How do ability boosts work? Well, mm, okay. Mm, what if I told you that each ability boost is plus one tier ability modifier and each ability flaw is minus one tier ability modifier? Dang it, I said I wouldn't do this. Okay, while functionally correct for now, that's also not right. In reality, each ability modifier is determined by an ability score. Each ability score starts at 10. A single ability boost is 2 points to your ability score, except for when your score reaches 18, in which case your ability boost is only 1 point. But every 2 points to your ability score is plus 1 to your modifier. Oh, I hate this! I know I said I wouldn't insert too much of my opinion, but I will die mad on a hill about how overly complicated this is. I know why this is the way that it is, because you'll often hear the math of Pathfinder is tight. And it is, every plus one carries a lot of weight to it because of the various levels of success. This rule slows down your modifier, so in essence you max out a modifier of plus four, and you'll stay there for a while, adding another point at level five, then adding another at level ten to increase it to plus five, to a max of plus six at level twenty. Also, if your group decides to, they could forego ability boost and roll up a character. This is where you take 4d6, roll them, remove the lowest dice, and collect those numbers to apply to the ability score. In that case, yes, the two score points for every plus one modifier would be needed because you'd have numbers like 9 or 13 and need to figure out what those are for your modifier. Regardless, them's the rules, I don't make them, but for simplicity, for now, at level 1, each ability boost is plus 1 to your modifier, and each flaw is minus 1. Good? Good. So we add the boost's flaw, as well as the free one that most ancestors get. We also wrote down our ancestors' hit points, size, speed, languages, and perception too. You've also selected a heritage, as well as an ancestral feat that you'll get at level 1 and every 4 levels afterward. Now it's time to find that background. This is where that totally unique backstory where you escaped from slavery, or your parents died, or your nobility in secret. You know, things that no one else has ever thought of come in. This is a unique selection that gives your character some flavor as well as some mechanical benefits based on your past. You get to choose from one of two restricted ability boosts and get one free one. It's worth noting here that you can't double up on ability boosts at this stage. 
If one of your restricted ability boosts was to intelligence, you can't select it again for your free one. You gotta select something different. But if you have a flaw from your ancestry, this might also be a good chance to put a point into that flaw to make up for it. Or you know, you could just keep on stacking up a benefit that you think will be more worthwhile for you. You'll also get some special knowledge from your profession called lore and a skill feat directly related to your background. If you like a background but not the feat, don't worry, you'll still get a new skill feat every odd level. So choose what you think will be best for your character. This is the only time you'll do anything really with the background, so treasure your time here. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. Let's take a moment. Okay, now it's the time you've all been waiting for. The class! But you'll have to wait a bit longer as we take a trip to the Wares Wizard. Ah, what ho! You're back, adventurer, and oh my, you look a right mess. Where's your equipment? Where are you keeping track of your spells? And are you really holding all of your feats together with a rubber band? This won't do. Hold on. Aha, yes. What you need is a character sheet app. I have two lovely ones to choose from. Path Builder and The Wanderer's Guide. Either of these apps will help you build your character from start to finish. They'll present you with all the feats and choices to gain access to at each level, track your gold, add up your hit points, and do all the fancy math work for you. All you have to do is make your selections and you're done. Then when you're at the table, you can use them just as you would a pen and paper sheet, tracking damage, conditions, and looking up your special moves. Path Builder was originally made only for Android phones, but has recently released a desktop model as well. Plus, it will transcribe your stats onto a real character sheet if you want to go old school. Wanderer's Guide was specifically made for an internet browser, but has additional benefits to calculating rest, using variant rules, and even adds playtest material. Either one would be good for building or managing your character. It just depends on what suits you. Be sure to support Raid Razor and Kuzar's Patreons as they provide an indispensable service to the community for free. Speaking of, a hearty thank you to Dan, Alex, Omen Podcast, Antonion, Deadly D8, Dennis, Emmeline, Mando, Josh, and Willie for your Patreon support. Dan Coleman, our first legendary patron, sent us a message cantrip wanting to draw attention to his favorite rule. Gaming is for all, found in the introductory chapter of the core rulebook. It says, Pathfinder is a game built for everyone, regardless of their age, gender, race, or ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, or other identities and life experiences. It is the responsibility of all players, not just the GM, to make sure their table is fun and welcoming to all. Thank you, Dan. Hopefully other companies will take that to heart. Well, I've had you long enough and you stink, so go clean yourself up with either Path Builder, The Wanderer's Guide, or any other community-made resources out there. Off you go. And take a bath. 
All right, we need to select you a class. There are a lot of them in the core rulebook and even more in other books. You're not going to have to wait seven years for Paizo to send one single new class our way. But for right now, let's just go over the core classes. First is a new class unique to Pathfinder, the Alchemist. Specializing in bombs and potions, the Alchemist is one of the few classes to use intelligence as a key modifier. And they're going to be using the crafting rules a lot. Next is the Raging Barbarian. The Barbarian's claim to fame is RAGE, giving them extra temporary health and dealing extra damage. The Euphonious Bard. The most charismatic class, their very voice inspires the party to hit harder, avoid damage, and can even heal. The Mighty Champion. A nice mix of martial and spellcaster, the champion upholds a code, giving them unparalleled defensive abilities for themselves and helping others. The Holy Cleric. Most renowned for being the go-to healer using divine powers, but they'll also be the heaviest hitter in fights against the undead and other evils. The Nature-Loving Druid. A spellcaster known for changing into various animals and tuning into the primal magics, as well as summoning leshies or befriending animals. The Heroic Fighter. You hit things. You hit things the best. Swords, the best. Bows, the best. Hands, the best. Armor, the best. You're the best. The Punch-a-Bunch Monk. Totally stole that joke from Q-Times. Monk is the best hand-to-hand -hand fighter. Okay, well, they'll never be as good at unarmed as the fighter, but they got key magic and powerful stances. Plus, they hit way more, so take that, fighter. The Rugged Ranger. Using Hunt Prey, they can zero in on a target, study them, and take them down quickly with ranged or melee attacks. Very at home in the wilds and one of the few classes that can have an animal companion. A rebellious rogue. Okay, yeah, people think they're all depressed and mysterious, but really the only actual trait of a rogue is that they're good at any skills that they set their mind to, and they can use dexterity to deal damage with martial weapons. The Savant Sorcerer The Sorcerer is naturally talented at magic, so you don't have to prepare spells. You can use whatever you want as long as you have a spell slot. However, you have a smaller spell than other casters. The Wizen Wizard. The Wizard Crap! Tis I, the Wares Wizard. The Wizard is a master of the arcane arts with an unparalleled list of spells to choose from each day. The Wizard is the best class. Wizards forever. Wizards all the way down! Get back in your box! Okay, but yeah, he's right. Wizards are really powerful, but their spells have to be prepared each day and can't be changed for that whole day. And them's all the classes. 
Once you select one, you'll add your initial proficiencies to the sheet. All this entails is checking a box on the sheet next to where it is. You'll see boxes labeled as Trained, Expert, Master, and Legendary next to your Perception, Saving Throws, Skills, Attacks, and Defenses. Your Class DC will be the key ability for your class, like Intelligence for Alchemists or Wisdom for Clerics, plus your Proficiency. We'll go over DCs a little bit more, but this is basically the role that enemies are going to have to go against in order to save against some of your special abilities. You'll also get one more ability boost from your key ability. Some have choices like Rogue with Dexterity or something else of your choice, while other classes only have one, like Charisma for Sorcerers. These few pages of your class are now your best friend. Bookmark them. Keep them handy. Keep them safe especially the page after the one with the class title and iconic artwork. This has the class advancement table, and every class has one that's unique to them. It'll show you all the abilities that you get to upgrade, all the times that you get to choose a new feat, everything, step-by-step -step instructions. At level one, you'll notice that each class has special class features to select. I am not going to go over those right now. To learn more about these, I'll refer you to the podcasters and YouTubers who have already covered them. And finally, you get four free ability boosts. Hooray! You can add a boost to one of each type of score. The highest modifier you'll be able to achieve is plus four, or 18 ability score. And the lowest is minus one if you had a flaw and you didn't add anything up to fix it. So to recap, that's four free ability boosts. Ah, ah, ah. Two from your background. Ah, ah, ah. And one from your class. Ah, ah, ah. Okay, enough of that. And either two free ability boosts for humans, or three boosts and a flaw for non-humans. It's worth noting that other ancestries will give you two boosts and no flaw, but none of them are in the core rulebook. And now it's time for math! Filling in the rest of the sheet is just basic addition. You add the ability score modifier plus your proficiency. You get two points to your modifier for trained, four for expert, six for master, and eight for legendary. But if you ever forget, there's a key at the top of the standard character sheet showing this. So, for example, say that your wisdom is plus three, and you have expert proficiency in perception. That's three plus four for a perception modifier of seven. You'll do all that math on all of the squares. Or you could use one of the endorsed character sheet creators and they'll do all the math for you. As you get items, you may have to add more points to your modifier, like the striking rune which adds plus one to your attacks, or the eyes of the eagle, an item that adds plus two to your perception. There are also circumstance and status bonuses which are going to be added more on the fly. Circumstance bonuses are when you're at the right place at the right time, like when you're flanking. Status bonuses are when you get buffs from outside sources, like spells or potions, or even special abilities. Each one of these bonuses can stack, but never two of the same kind. For instance, if you have two items that grant you a bonus to athletics checks, only the one with the greater bonus will apply. However, if the source of those bonuses are different, those would stack. So, for instance, you have an AC of plus 5. If you find Lesser Cover, that gives you a Circumstance bonus of plus 1 to AC, for plus 6. If you have Mage Armor cast on you as well, that's another plus 1 to AC from an Item bonus, so you have a plus 7 now. 
Plus, you're in a circle of protection, which also grants you a plus one status bonus to AC. So that's a plus eight to your AC from all those different spells and abilities stacking together. However, if you also cast shield, that would not stack because it gives you a plus one circumstance bonus to AC, which we're already getting from lesser cover. Of course, if you get out of lesser cover and you have shield cast, well then the shield will give you the circumstance bonus instead of lesser cover. A lot of that is situation specific though. For the most part, you're gonna have everything all calculated out for you, especially when you get a new item that grants you a bonus to whatever. When someone gives you a buff, they're gonna let you know. They're gonna remind you about it all the time. They're gonna make sure that you apply that buff. So don't worry, you're gonna be fine. For everything else, you have your ability and proficiency modifier, which is going to get you really far already. The final part of character creation is getting your starting gold and going shopping! At level 1, you get 15 gold pieces regardless of class. If your game is starting at a higher level though, use table 10-10 to determine how much gold and items you start with. Your GM might say take the lump sum amount then place a cap on the level of items that you can buy. Or they might have you take the specified amount of permanent items and then the remaining currency. Or they might let you choose. Remember, 2E uses silver as a standard currency, so one gold piece actually is a lot of money. 10 copper is one silver, 10 silver is one gold, 10 gold is one platinum, and 10 platinum makes you a member of the corporate elite who doesn't pay their fair share of taxes. And that's it! You got yourself a brand spanking new character! This baby can hold so many feats, will have good mileage, and you can trade it in at any time with your GM's approval. You can even retrain skills if something isn't working out so that you can keep the character that you like. But I know what you're thinking as you look at this giant character sheet. You're thinking so many boxes, so many numbers, so much math! To which I say, get a hold of yourself, dang it! It's not really all that bad because although you have all of those squares, you're only going to be making one of eight types of roll. Yes, that's it. One of eight rolls, most of which are checks. These rolls are intended to simulate randomness because not every hit is a kill shot and not every miss is a catastrophe. Skill checks are probably what you'll do most often. Yes, even more than combat. Skills are used for everything, from healing, to climbing, to talking, to sneaking, to learning. There are some actions that used to be their own unique skill, but now they're nested inside of others. Like climbing and swimming are both athletics, while sense motive and perception are both perception. This means that a once very large list of skills is now a lot smaller. All you have to do is ask your GM what to roll, and they should tell you. You simply roll a 20-sided dice called a d20 and then add your modifier. Say you're trying to pick the lock of a treasure chest. If your thievery modifier is plus 7 and you roll an 11, then your score is 18. If you had any additional bonuses or penalties from status, circumstance, or items, you would add those in as well. Your GM is then going to take that number and compare it to a difficulty class called DC for short and that's going to determine if you pass or fail, as well as the level of success that you have. Anything above the DC is a success, anything that is lower is a failure. 10 or more above the DC is a critical success, and 10 or less is a critical failure. Your GM will know when this happens, 
All you have to do on your end is make the roll, add your modifiers, and say what you got. Then they'll tell you what happened. Easy peasy. You'll also make saving throws. There's regular saving throws and basic saving throws. For your part, there's no difference in what you roll or add to it, just what the effect is. Saving throws are made either using fortitude, how well your body resists stuff like poisons or disease, reflex, how well you can dodge a hazard or avoid an attack, or will, which is how well your mind does against mind-altering spells, drugs, hazards, you name it. These rolls function exactly the same as skill checks. Your GM will say what to roll, you roll a d20, add the modifiers, bonuses, and penalties, then tell your GM the total. The critical ranges apply here too. Many saves have special effects, but there are some that are more simple, called basic saving throws. In this case, there's a standard order of effect. If you critically succeed, you take no damage. If you succeed, you take half. On a failure, you'll take full damage, and on a critical failure, you'll take double. Creatures, however, also get to make these rolls if you're throwing a spell or ability at them that makes them roll a saving throw. Succeeding at any one of these checks, while also avoiding damage, will also help you avoid contracting various conditions that will negatively impact your character. The saving throw, then, is your shot to save yourself, so don't take any of these stats for granted. Now for the most well-known one. Whenever you enter an encounter, you're going to roll initiative. You'll see that there's no initiative spot on your sheet, and that's okay. That's because initiative can be rolled by any skill in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Typically, perception is used for initiative, and that's why it's got such a big extra special box. But say you enter combat when you need to climb a cliff, then your GM might save to roll athletics or acrobatics. Or you could be entering a social encounter, and the GM will say to roll deception, diplomacy, or intimidation for initiative. Or they can say that you choose your own if the scenario is more complicated than simply starting a fight. The rogue might get to roll a thievery as they pick a lock. The fighter might roll athletics to hold open a stone door. And the sorcerer might roll society to figure out some kind of stone glyphs. This lets initiative be way more dynamic. Meaning that it's going to give your players different opportunities to shine depending on what the circumstance is. Once you're in combat you'll probably make rolls to attack, and then roll damage if you hit. There's melee and ranged attack rolls, as well as spell attacks. And you guessed it, crits come into play here too, as well as the basic calculation of roll, plus your modifier, plus bonuses, minus penalties. Melee largely uses strength, while ranged uses dexterity, but there's a few feats that grant exceptions. It's worth noting that everything with the attack trait suffers from a multiple attack penalty. The first roll of an attack is rolled like normal. Whatever the result is, that's your result. The second attack, however, has a penalty of minus 5 and the third a minus 10. So, if you roll a 19 on your third attack with a modifier of 10, the multiple attack penalty wipes off the 10 from those points for a total of just straight 19. It's not often that a third attack hits, so the third action is probably a good opportunity to do something else, but you know. Sometimes miracles happen. Spell attacks are made using your key modifier. So, charisma for bards and sorcerers, wisdom for druids and clerics, and intelligence for wizards. You'll do the same kind of roll as everything else. Roll, plus modifier, plus bonus, minus penalties. And compare the total to the AC of the creature. Keep in mind, many spells actually don't require a spell attack roll. Only for the creature to make a saving throw. 
So if you cast heal on a zombie, you don't have to attack them first. They just have to make a save. Any attack is compared either against the armor class or AC or difficulty class DC of a creature. Armor is 10 plus your dex modifier plus proficiency bonus plus the armor bonus to AC and then any other bonuses and penalties. Keep in mind, some armor has a dexterity cap on it, meaning that the dex that you add to your AC can't go higher than the armor allows. So if you have a dex modifier of 4 and the armor has a dex cap of 3, you can only use the 3 to calculate your AC. That dex cap will also apply to everything else that is touched by dexterity, like reflex saves. So keep that in mind when selecting your armor. But armor can make up with this with a higher AC bonus if being able to take a hit is more important to you than getting out of the way. You may also have a creature's role compared to your own DC. Typically, this is the spell DC for spellcasters, but there's also class DCs for everyone else. This is always, without fail, 10 plus your modifier. So the spell DC is the same modifier you use for your spell attacks, plus 10. So, let's say your spell modifier is 10, and a creature has to beat your spell DC. They have to roll better than a 20 in order to pass. This simple rule applies to everything. An athletics DC to break a grapple, 10 plus athletics. Perception to avoid being seen, 10 plus your perception modifier. Every time, all the time. So, if you attack and hit, or cast a spell and hit, now you get to do damage! Damage is determined by the individual weapon or spell and any modifiers. Critical rules for damage only apply for successful melee or ranged attacks so you'll only ever double damage on a critical success or do regular damage on a normal success. You won't do half damage, you'll just do no damage. On spells that require a basic save, you'll get to do half damage minimum against a creature unless they critically succeed at their save. When you double damage, roll it like usual, add modifiers, penalties, and bonuses, then just double it. That's it. You rolled a 10, after all the math, it's now 20 damage. You rolled 3, now it's 6. Easy. If you have to cut the damage in half, round down. So, 5 half is 2 damage. One very important thing is that when making attacks, note the type of damage that you're doing. Piercing, bludgeoning, or slashing in the case of weapons, or the type of energy like fire, cold, or electrical with spells. This is because creatures may have vulnerabilities or weaknesses to certain types of attacks. They may also have immunities or resistances. Oozes are notoriously resistant to slashing attacks, while bludgeoning can hit them normally. Other creatures like the Crystal Dragon have a weakness to sonic damage. So, as much as you might just be tempted to say 10 or 7 damage or whatever, add that special bit of spice. It may save you! It may also harm you. But let's concentrate on saving! It's also worth noting that non-lethal attacks on the final blow are the only kind of attack that leaves a creature alive once they hit zero hit points. I never played a 1e game where we wouldn't spam killing the creature, tying their body up, resurrecting them for interrogation every single time. No more! Zero HP, they're dead. That said, you can make any melee or ranged attack non-lethal by taking a minus two to your attack. So even if they have one hit point left and you do non-lethal attack of 21, that creature will just be unconscious despite the heavy damage, letting you tie them up, revive them, and then interrogate them.
The final roll type you might have to make is a flat check. This is a straight up or down d20 roll. No modifiers, no bonuses, no penalties. Typically, these are made when you're trying not to die, called a recovery check. Dying can happen in a couple ways. Some spells with the death trait can insta-kill you. If an enemy hits you for double the amount of hit points you have, you can also instantly die. So, uh, remember Asmodeus in Session Zero, who you slapped in the face? Well, he slapped you back for 40 damage, and you have 20 HP. So, yeah, you're dead. This is called massive damage. Most often, though, you'll reach zero hit points and fall unconscious. You're now at dying one, or dying two if you went down because of a critical. The DC to be on your recovery check depends on how you're dying, plus 10. So if you're dying one, the DC of the flat check is 11. If you're dying three, it's 13. If you're dying four, oh wait, there is no dying four. You're dead. So you really, really, really want to hope that you can beat that. The flat check still benefits from the different levels of success, increasing by two on a crit fail, a one by a failure, decreasing by one on a success, or two on a critical success. Because of the nature of the flat check, as well as even the lowest level of dying, you'll only ever critically succeed on a nat 20. If you beat all of your checks, moving to dying zero, you now gain the wounded condition. Wounded serves as a placeholder in case you die again. You're still unconscious with zero points up at the moment when you reach zero, but once you're at one HP or higher, you can wake up. The wounded condition doesn't immediately do anything to you and will remain on you until you're restored to full HP and rest, or someone does treat wounds on you. It's easy to think that if you reach dying to and then you recover, you'd be at wounded to. No, that's not actually how it works. Wounded is basically a count of how many times you've gone down. So if you recover from dying two, you'd be at wounded one if this is the first time that you went down. If you go down again, and then recover again, your wounded condition goes up by one, and that will also be the dying level that you start off if you go down again. This means that you can go down several times in one fight and not really die. You could go from dying one, then two, then three, recover to wounded one, die one, two, three, recover to two, die two, three, recover to three, die three, recover to wounded four, and still live. Then you can start it all over again. It might seem a little complex, and admittedly it is, but it's also pretty forgiving, letting you take a lickin' while keep on ticking. Ah, yes. There's one other thing that can stop you from dying. A hero point! At the start of every session, you get a hero point. No, no, no. Not every level. Not every chapter. Every session. You know, when you and your friends get together and play. You can use a hero point to either re-roll a check or avoid death. If you re-roll a check, you have to take the second result, and you can't re-roll that check more than once because a hero point is a fortune effect. If your dying condition would increase, you can use all the hero points you have and stabilize with zero hit points, and you don't gain the wounded condition. This is called heroic recovery and has saved players bacon more than once. Your GM should, again, should give about one hero point out for every hour of gameplay. You, personally, will never have more than three, and they'll all go away at the end of a session. 
the end of a session being when you all go home. This should encourage you to spend them with reckless abandon or give them to another player to help them out. You'll always be able to get more and you won't be able to save them. So use it or lose it. Woo! This has been a lot, but guess what? We've gone through almost all of chapter nine. There's still a few things to go over, like various levels of perception, conditions, effects, alignment, but those are pretty situation specific, and your GM should really know more about those. But if you're curious, go check out How It's Played, a YouTube channel dedicated to going in-depth on various rules of play. This is also a good time to mention that Dave, the creator of How It's Played, is going to be the first guest on Rise of the Rule Lords Unchained. This is a Patreon-exclusive bonus podcast that will touch on things outside of the community use policy. I'm going to try my best to get various interviews, but sometimes I might just need to vent on something or respond to something or, you know, whatever. I've added a goal to Patreon that if we get to $25 a month in Patreon support, I will release this episode for free to all the listen on Patreon. So come support the pod and listen to a cool guy talk about cool things. There's a really fun story about a jetpack. Before we end, there's a few basic actions you should know. These are things that you're going to be using in combat. As you may know by now, you get three actions on your turn. There are a lot more than these, and we'll cover them in another episode. But these will get you where you need to go. First is Strike. It's the simple one action to do a melee or ranged combat, such as hitting with a sword or shooting with an arrow. You'll roll an attack modifier that we've already discussed, calculated against the AC of a creature with the weapon that you bought. If you hit, you'll roll damage specified by the type of weapon that you use. Keep the multiple attack penalty in mind when you do this. That's again a minus 5 on the second attack and the minus 10 on the third. You'll get a lot of feats with a lot of cooler attacks as you level up, but like a good neighbor, Strike will be there. Stride is the basic one action to move. Your speed from your ancestry is the number of squares that you can move. Each five feet is one square on a map. So if you get a speed of 25, you can move five squares for each one stride that you use. Keep in mind, if you move diagonally, the first diagonal square is five feet and the next is 10, for a total of 15 feet for two diagonal squares. Striding could provoke movement-based reactions, like the infamous attack of opportunity. Remember, again, this is pretty rare, don't be too scared of it. But, if you discover a creature has such a reaction, or you don't want to find out, use the one action, Step. This lets you move one square, but won't provoke those kind of reactions, keeping you safe. The Cast a Spell special activity is technically what you're really doing when you cast any spell, be it a one-action heal or a three-action prismatic wall. Mostly what you need to do, including the action cost, is listed on the spell itself. The special activity is in Chapter 7. It's the basic spell rule saying, do what the spell does. The main thing to keep in mind are the spell components being material, somatic, verbal, or focus. These traits will determine if you're even able to cast that spell. For example, a spell with the material component has the manipulate trait. 
So if you're grabbed, you can't do that spell. But if you're grabbed and casting a spell that's just verbal, you can do that just fine. Interact is really anything that you do with your hands. Grabbing a potion, interact. Opening a door, interact. Pulling out a sword, interact. If you don't know what it is, it's probably an interact. It may take more than one interact to accomplish something. Essentially, whenever the and of your sentence is. So if you pull out a potion and drink it, that's two interacts. One for getting the potion and one for glugging it down. You may also want to wait to do something during combat. You could hold your actions, which means that you do nothing on your turn. Then swap initiative placement when you feel like doing something again. Or you could do the ready action. Readying takes two actions and lets you set up an impromptu reaction. Say you want to ambush someone coming through a door. You can move to the door, then ready. You have to specify a trigger to the GM, like someone coming through the door, and then you can do one single action, like a strike or a trip. You can't use ready to prepare a spell or do a three action move. And when you're ready to ready, your turn is done even if you still had an action left over. So make sure that you plan accordingly. Aid is one such reaction that you could prepare from ready. This is when you want to assist someone with a check that they're making. The trigger is whenever the ally that you want to help wants to do something that you want to help with. So, for example, if they want to jump across a chasm, you could aid them with an athletics roll to give them anywhere from a plus one on a success to a plus two on a critical success to their own athletics check. Be warned, you can also hurt their check if you fail. It's a long way. Giving them a minus one or a minus two on a critical failure. Don't tell the elf. So be sure you can actually help. Not poor. Finally, recall knowledge is a great one action to do on your third action. Because the multiple attack penalty, the third strike is mostly a Hail Mary. Instead, you can help the rest of the party out by trying to figure out something about the creature or spell that can give you and your party an advantage. The skill to roll is largely Arcana, Nature, Occultism, Religion, or Society, but you also have that special lore from your background that you can use. Again, there are a lot more actions to cover, but on your first game, this is going to get you pretty far. After your first good day of adventuring, you can finally rest. Rest is how you know that this is a fantasy game because you get to sleep for 8 full hours. It lets you regain hit points equal to your constitution modifier times your level. So if you have a plus 4 con at level 4, that's 16 hit points back. It also lets spellcasters regain spell slots and prepare new ones in the morning and regains all of your focus points. Other preparation activities can also be done in the morning. And now, you are ready to play! To recap, create a character from an ancestry, background, and class using the info on the sidebar of those sections. Add all the numbers up from your ability modifier and proficiency. Use those totals at all of your rolls as specified by the GM. Add each type of penalty and bonus to the grand total too. Buy equipment with 15 gold at level 1, go out adventuring, fight some monsters, then sleep. And seriously, don't forget Wanderer's Guide and Path Builder can make tracking and calculating this all a hundred times easier for you. Before you go, it's time for a Rulord Ruling! 
If you have a rule dispute you want settled, tag me on Twitter at RuleLord2E and use the hashtag RuleLord. Court is now in session. Your Honor, my client Comet has a dispute. As a rogue with sneak attack, he should be able to strike any creature with the flat-footed condition, including creatures he is not flanking as long as two of his party members are. He was denied this extra damage by his GM and demands satisfaction. I might just be a small country lawyer gnome, but rules as written says a creature with the flat-footed condition, which I believe applies in this case. Before I make my ruling, let's get some housekeeping out of the way. Like I said, Dave of How It's Played will be on a special Patreon-exclusive episode of Rise of the Rule Lords Unchained. Also on Patreon, but also completely for free, is the latest module of the month, We Be Goblins! This popular 1E AP was originally a free RPG Day module. It also just happens that you can get a free PDF on paizo.com. So go relive some history! Finally, I want to leave you with some more Pathfinder endorsements. Again, they're not sponsors, and I don't endorse anything that they might say if they go to the dark side, but for now, these shows are really great, and I think that you'll enjoy them too. First is the audio drama podcast Omen. I love audio dramas, but they're pretty rare, especially ones that aren't overly religious or just something from the public domain. Omen offers a studio-quality drama of diverse voice actors, sound effects, and music following a diabolical conspiracy on the high seas of Galarian. You can check out the first few episodes on your podcatcher or at omencast.com. Next is Hijinks, the first actual play endorsement of this podcast. I actually don't like actual plays, even Critical Role because people just keep on talking over each other. Not only do the actors of Realignment, the campaign name, give each other space to talk, but they have music, sound effects, as well as a a really beautiful set. Look up hijinks on YouTube or follow the link in the show notes. An additional thing that they did that really caught my notice was that they acknowledged that they live and work on Aboriginal land, and that prompted me to look up whose land I'm on as well. For this part of the Pacific Northwest, this land belongs to the Santiam and Kalpuya nations, both of which are part of the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde. Uh, Follow the link in the show notes if you want to find out whose land you're on. Lastly is a project I truly love called the Botanical Bestiary. It's a project run by two well-renowned Pathfinder 2E Redditors who combine their powers of leshy design and charming art to make a book of tons of leshies. The Kickstarter is already over and fully funded with all stretch goals unlocked but you can still pre-order a copy on their backer kit. Look up the Botanical Bestiary to reserve a copy for some of the best third-party Pathfinder 2E content available right now. Court is back in session. In Pathfinder, the specific overrides the general. At first glance, yes, it seems that a rogue should be able to get the sneak attack bonus as well as the plus two flanking bonus. However, because flanking specifies the creature is only flat-footed to the PCs who are flanking it, the ranger would not get their sneak attack bonus. They'd either need to move into flanking position, 
or they could always use the feint action to cause the creature to become flat-footed to them. It's worth noting, flanking rules were changed in the second errata update, so check a second printing book or download a PDF copy with the current rules. Sentence! This is a simple misunderstanding. I sentence the GM to provide more opportunities for the rogue to sneak attack. So, are you ready for your first session? Did you learn what you needed to play Pathfinder? Remember, all of these rules can be found in Chapter 9 of the Core Rulebook or in the Hero's Handbook of the Beginner's Box. Let me know on Twitter, Gmail, or Patreon at RuleLord2E. Join us next time for a quick and dirty guide to being a Game Master. But, until next session, don't let the rules rule you!